Hello, I'm Gemma Ware in London. And I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. It is good to be back. We've been busy working on some new ideas for the show over the past few months, which is why you've not been hearing so much from us. And we're really excited now about the stories we've got coming up for you. Welcome back to The Conversation Weekly. Dan, I heard that you guys have been hitting some temperature records over there in California. Is it really, really hot? It's so hot right now, Gemma. Uh, Yeah, we've been breaking records all over the Bay Area. San Francisco was super hot yesterday. Let me just look this up real quick. I think we were hitting 116 Fahrenheit in Livermore, which is in the East Bay, 115 in Santa Rosa. What is that in my speak in Celsius? Oh, uh, north of 46, close to 47. Wow, 46. That is that yeah. is that is really hot. How are you keeping cool? Well, uh, at least in San Francisco, the city, most of the houses don't have air conditioning. It's not usually this hot. And certainly it's not been that hot here in San Francisco. But yesterday I was lying on my housemate's room's floor because she has the colder room in the house. It kind of worked. I took a nap. <laughs> well, that sounds a little bit like what we were doing here in London a couple of months ago when we hit our own temperature records. It hit not 46, but, uh, but 40. And I was putting towels, wet towels in the fridge and draping them around my neck. And yeah, it didn't smell so great. But yeah, it was it was hot. (laughs) I remember that you had like a wet towel around you and we were trying to record something. Uh, It looked like a good idea. You going to try it? Uh, We'll see. We'll see if the sun comes out today. But um, we've both been going through this heat, right, Gemma? And we both live in cities that aren't traditionally super hot. And we're not alone this year, right? Like there's been a lot of different places all around the world that are dealing with unusually high temperatures. Yeah, Europe's been having them. In China, they've been having heat waves in North Africa. This has been a really, really bad year for extreme heat. So one thing that struck me yesterday and my friends and I were talking about it, I remember we talked about it when you guys were having your heat wave, is that San Francisco, London, and presumably a lot of places around the world this year just aren't used to the heat that they're experiencing, right? It's like, I don't have air conditioners in my house and you don't either, Gemma, right? There's a lot of mismatch between the infrastructure in the cities and the buildings and the climate people are living in this year. You're right. Your house, my house, these buildings are just not designed for this kind of heat. But while this is a pretty new problem for London and for San Francisco, around the world, there are actually lots of buildings built in ways that are just not right for their environment. In this episode, I've been exploring how certain styles of architecture and building design were exported all over the world. And in the process, they usurped traditional building techniques that are better suited to hotter temperatures. As we're going to hear, though, in this episode, some architects are trying to change that. And I want to start the story with one of them, Anthony Ubukiri. Today, Anthony is a senior lecturer in construction management at Nottingham Trent University in the UK, but he was born in Nigeria. Southeastern Nigeria, which, you know, as tropical as it gets, if you like. And then went to college, finding my path in the beauty environment and my interest in knowing more about design and making of buildings, making things generally. So I was drawn to study architecture. One of the things that I know you're interested in is how well a building is suited to its actual environment and the place it's built and the environment of where it's built. Tell me, when you were studying in Nigeria and working in practice, did you ever have to work on designing buildings that you knew just weren't suited to the climate of Nigeria? Tell me about it. So in the year out as a pupil architect working in firms, there were several, without mentioning names, there were several commissions where at that time you may have been involved in some drafting and you'd be looking at the structure is an office block 
It has lots of glazing, you know, and each time you ask questions, common answers you will get is, well, the building was going to be air-conditioned. You know, your environmental analysis sense would usually kick in when you looked at your layout. And they'll tell you, well, this is going to be um, artificially lit and it's going to be, it's going to have ACs that definitely you're going to have to use mechanical systems. Anthony was being asked to design a typical-looking concrete office block with big windows, a design that's become pretty much the international standard over the past century. If you look at the late 19th century to early 20th century architecture, when, if you like, the modernism movement came, which was moving away from ornamentation up to lightweight structures that achieves maximum values, especially on the commercial spectrum. This is typical what a high-rise building office block on the skyline of a city, what it should look like. And that became almost like a template. It's a template that's now being used around the world, no matter how hot or cold the climate. So if you take a photo, there's an analysis I was doing with a colleague, and we're looking at developing countries particularly. If you just literally took a fly through the West African sub-regional coast. So if you picked up Lagos, Accra, all the way to Dakar, perhaps in Senegal, and round the block all the way to Tanzania, Kenya side in the East Africa. If you took different shots of the skylines, you couldn't tell the difference. You couldn't tell the difference. And yet, even within that journey, you would have come across various climatic conditions. Anthony says it was the same when he compared an office tower in Lagos and one in Birmingham in the UK. You couldn't say these two animals, where would they nest? And you would ask, why do they look almost the same? Mm. You know, and you know exactly that one of them is out of place. And it makes it even worse when, as a copy of that international style, if you like, when everybody inside that building is dressed in a black suit, in a formal, what is again considered the international corporate style. Here we are in the UK. I'm, I'm struggling wearing even a white shirt sitting next to a window. Imagine somebody in some office in Lagos having a suit on top of this with tie and lots of that type sat in several tables. So you literally ramping up the cooling load even by behavior, which, by the way, that culture was also a copied culture. Anthony's got a name for this kind of architecture, duplicature. He says its roots lie in the legacy of colonialism. Unfortunately, with interruption of those societies through colonialism, essentially you might say that between that 18th century to when 100 years later, when there was independence in 1960, you might argue that 100 years of organic development was lost. It's interesting to think about the places I visited, traveling and going around the world, where, now that I think about it, absolutely, so many of these skylines are really similar. And it's kind of sad, right? I would have loved to see places built organically with their own local culture and heritage infused within the architecture. Because when you go see another giant apartment block, it looks the same as every other one I've ever seen. So it's an excellent point. Yeah, and it does really just show this ideological and cultural power that former colonial countries have and their architects have had on on building styles around the world. And this idea that local methods just weren't modern enough and so kind of got thrown out. Modern's an interesting word you use there because I got to imagine modern has to do with design, sure, but also materials, right? Like I'm thinking 
glass and concrete and steel and stuff. Yes, you're right. It's concrete. Concrete is a really big part of this story. According to some statistics, concrete is the second most consumed material on Earth after water. This is Vita Pivo. She's a postdoctoral scholar and assistant professor of architecture at the University of Michigan in the US. Her research focuses on the social and political history of concrete and how it became such a ubiquitous building material around the world. It it took a long time for us to get there. (laughs) And it wasn't just that it became this material, that there's parties that were interested in making the material the most consumed material on Earth. Vita used to think very differently about concrete than she does today. I grew up in Lithuania, so I was surrounded by concrete, but it had a very different kind of context where it was this like medium of modernity. It was like the future. It was the Soviet kind of utopia. Everyone wanted to live in a concrete tower because it meant you had proper facilities and kitchens and bathrooms and trash chutes. And it was a modern kind of living condition. Living in a concrete building meant like living in the future. And then when I moved to the United States as a teenager, I realized that concrete here has a very different kind of connotation. And it's really more connected to urbanity, poverty, crime. And so I realized there's this one material, but it has these very different cultural meanings and contexts. And that made me think that actually there's multiple histories and multiple stories to tell. For thousands of years, civilizations around the world have used different recipes to make concrete. But rapid social and economic changes in the early 20th century, particularly in the United States, led to the production of concrete on an unprecedented scale. In the U.S. context, a huge influx of immigrants that came to the U.S. at the turn of the 20th century to participate in the construction of different factories and different industries, the popularization of cars and the construction of roads and highways... I'm thinking also about the population growth and the need for housing, military infrastructure in the first half of the 20th century, and then this kind of concern for hygiene and health. That was an entry point for the construction of concrete hospitals and medical facilities. Throughout all of these efforts to modernize different industries and different types of people, concrete was tested and then tested again. And all of this effort was supported by the federal government to make sure that we come up with the kind of strongest, safest recipe. Vita told me that concrete's popularity grew out of this government support, alongside a broader cultural acceptance of the need to start building things that were permanent, that would last. And as the industry grew, it gained political clout and started lobbying for the material to be used more and more. This kind of pressure is actually still going on today. So in the U.S. context, there's these professional trade organizations that push for expanding applications of concrete. Their argument is that concrete is permanent, concrete lasts a much longer time, it's resistant to these different environmental conditions and to fire, and buildings of a particular size and scale, they must be built of concrete. And so any resistance to that idea gets a lot of attack from the industry because it's infringing on their territory. So uh, like a state might say, okay, buildings that are three stories or lower can be built of wood. And so that is the kind of the law. But the concrete industry is always eager to push it down as much as possible. As the US concrete industry grew in the mid-20th century, it began to have global ambitions. But the Americans found they weren't alone. One moment that you've 
talked about is this kind of post post Second World War era in the Cold War, where both the US and the Soviet Union kind of gave countries who they were allied with concrete. Can you tell us a bit more about what happened there and why that was happening? Sure. During the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union were competing for who could spread their version of concrete. And so that meant both the actual material, but also the technologies for its manufacture, techniques for constructing housing and other types of infrastructure. So both of the countries were sending literal cement plants. That's because cement is a key ingredient in concrete. By itself, cement isn't actually very strong and it's prone to cracking. But when it's mixed together with sand and rock, it acts as a powerful binder, creating an extremely strong rock-like material, concrete. Now, the two Cold War powers weren't just sending cement plants. But also experts to instruct local people how to do this, blueprints and architects for how to actually build particular types of concrete housing. They were called these like concrete gifts. And it was a competition both to discover who actually mastered concrete and who was better at gathering the materials, gathering the people, gathering the energy to make concrete. Vita told me this has significantly shaped how concrete is viewed and valued today. So I talk about the concrete gift economy as a way to influence global politics, but also as a way to spread like their own unique ideas about modernity. So basically, concrete became a measure for industrialization and which country was ahead of the other one. And in many ways, we continue to measure our own country's national product and health based on the construction market. As a result of what Vita calls the concrete gift economy, in many parts of the world, building with concrete has gradually undermined traditional techniques and materials. So in my own work, I think about Vietnam, which was a kind of benefactor of the concrete exchange because the US collaborated with the private industry to build concrete infrastructure and establish a modernized cement industry in Vietnam. Uh, during the war, Americans portrayed themselves as kind of teachers. So they were the global experts that disseminated knowledge. But by accepting this knowledge and this kind of concrete gift, the local country then agreed to participate in the maintenance of those technologies. So then the U.S. would come and maintain the cement plants with their own technology. So basically the idea was that the U.S. kind of created a market that they could continue drawing from and disseminating their own tools of manufacture. So U.S. was not like making cement, but it was providing the technologies for other countries to make that material. And now Vietnam is a top five cement manufacturer in the world. And so it's a major commodity for them. So they developed a kind of dependency on concrete. You know, Dan, this really struck home to me because I've been to Hanoi um, in the north of Vietnam and I have this vivid memory of standing on this concrete plaza that you have to wait on when you go and visit the mausoleum of Ho Chi Minh. And you're standing and it's boiling hot, scorching, and then you go into this like really cold mausoleum and everyone kind of dawdles because they want to get the most of the air conditioning that they can and then they have to go back outside again into this burning concrete landscape and ah, it was horrible. I got to imagine a concrete plaza is a pretty miserable place to be on the heat of the day. But all this talk of concrete, Gemma, I just can't not think about the fact that 
concrete production is a super CO2 intensive process. It is. And Dan, do you know exactly what percentage of global CO2 emissions come from concrete? Uh, 2%. You're actually quite a way off. It's actually 8% of the world's CO2 emissions. 8%? That's shockingly huge. <laughs> I, I know. 8% is a lot. And I think a lot of people think aviation is the one of the biggest contributors to global CO2 emissions, but that's only 2.8%. So concrete is a real culprit here. And it's not going to get any better because the industry is continuing to grow. The problem is that despite concrete's huge carbon footprint, construction industries around the world have become just so reliant on the stuff that it's hard to do away with it. Part of the challenge, I think, is that the cement industry very aggressively pushed that material. They wanted to invent all different kinds of products and different things that could be built of concrete. And so it became just a very well-studied, researched, and tested material. So that's why a lot of governments support concrete, because we just know so much about it. It's not so much that it's actually a better material, because in many cases, it's not really appropriate for particular climates. It's not really the best. It's not the best or the cheapest, (laughs) but it's just we know so much about it that it makes sense to design zoning codes and legal infrastructures to use that material. There is real economic incentive in terms of the companies shipping their material and producing and selling it to build newer, bigger, larger structures. So it's in terms of the politics and the economics of concrete, it's a losing battle. Okay, so we've heard a lot about how concrete became this go-to dominant building material around the world and is, of course, a giant CO2 emitter. But anytime I've been in a concrete building, they always feel really hot. So I'm trying to understand why that might be, Gemma, because when you're talking about a building that you want for a cool environment, you want it to be insulated and... Is concrete particularly bad at this kind of thing? It really is. And there are actually two main reasons for this that I've been learning about. First, it absorbs a lot of heat that hits its surface. And second, although it depends on the exact recipe that you use and the the conditions that the building is exposed to, most concrete actually allows heat to transfer from its surface across to the other side. And I'm thinking the same thing about glass, too. All these modern buildings are made of glass and... Glass is literally what you use to build a greenhouse. Exactly. And remember Anthony Ubakiri, who we were hearing from earlier, he was telling me about these office buildings that all look the same. They're made from cement and glass. And because of that, they're all really reliant on air conditioners or what he calls chillers. In Lagos, with above 60% glazing, when you step outside, you see where the chillers are. And what the chillers essentially doing is that you have a greenhouse with trapped heat inside and is trying to combat that high cooling load. And then you now have that cooling load transferred to the AC unit and they are pushing it back into the streets because when you go to the back of AC systems, it's really warm. So if you walk past these buildings, you're going to get a huge blast of heat. If you are close enough to the AC units, when I was doing my PhD, I went to Lagos and I went to a few commercial buildings on the marina. And as you're walking around past each of them towards where the AC units are, you can actually see the heat that is being compacted. This is made worse by the hard landscape. It's almost like let's all push all our heat out to the streets, which then comes back as a higher cooling load for everyone. Urban planners call these phenomena urban heat islands. That's when urban environments retain and emit excessive heat, just like that plaza in Hanoi I mentioned earlier. Now, there's a bunch of factors that go into creating these heat islands. Concrete's one of them, and so are air conditioners. A high density of urban development without any vegetation also exacerbates the problem too. 
But it doesn't have to be this way. Remember, Anthony told us about the building practices that were lost as a result of colonialism in countries like Nigeria. But if you travel across the country now, you can still find some examples of buildings designed using these traditional methods. And they're well suited to the varying local climates. If you move from the what is called the south, where you have the real tropical mangrove area, towards the inner savanna belt. If you looked at the traditional architectures of these layers, you would actually see a difference. Here, people build thatch houses with walls made out of adobe, a type of building material made out of earth that's one of the oldest in the world. You see the high, the large overhanging roofs. The roofs be so prominent with as much space as, and they try to cut in verandas, even in the traditional style. And as you move further up north through the savannas, you see the roof becoming smaller and the walls becoming more prominent. And as you hit the north, that is a bit, a little bit arid, as arid as it gets in northern Nigeria. Suddenly the roof has completely disappeared. Instead, the houses have thick walls to insulate the insides from the arid heat. Now, they didn't go to schools of architecture to learn that. They figured it out over hundreds of years of evolution. Anthony says you can see echoes of the architecture in the plants of the region too, something called biomimicry, when humans mimic what's going on elsewhere in nature. When you look at, say, for example, the mushroom plants that you find or cocoyam, a lot of them want to have broad leaves, both for photosynthesis purposes, for struggling for light, but also for removing excess water, trans- evapotranspiration, traveling through their stomata. You see that their structures reflect their location. And if you checked a plant in south of Nigeria or near Lagos in the southwest and went to the north and looked at the kind of plants you see there, you see the difference. These animals figured that out. And then people, of course, through the vernacular styles, also align their practice with the flora and the fauna. Biomimicry or biomimetic design is one way to make sure the inside of a building stays cool by simply keeping the heat out in the first place. But if the hot air is already inside, how do you go about cooling it down without the use of air conditioning or in fact any electric energy at all? Across North Africa and the Middle East, people have actually been doing this through the way they design their buildings for thousands of years. What is the temperature outside and what is the temperature inside today? It's reached 47. 47. And inside? Inside uh, between uh, 30 to 35. This is Suzanne Abed Hassan. She's a professor in architectural engineering at Noreen University in Baghdad, Iraq. Suzanne specialises in environmental engineering and specifically how to adapt buildings to hot climates like Iraq's. And the reason it's more than 10 degrees colder inside Suzanne's home than it is outside is because she designed it herself using what's called passive design. In passive housing design or passive building design, we try to minimize as much as possible the energy consumption from electricity or another type of energy. This means designing buildings so they stay cool without the use of air conditioners or electric fans. Now I feel the problem. I live in this climate. It's always high temperature in Baghdad, but now the number of days with high temperature is more than before. Usually we have a month with high temperature, but now we have more than 60 to 19 days with very hot temperatures. This is really a serious problem because we are not able to go out during a day. She says that extreme heat is also leading to more frequent power cuts. 
This means that even households that are lucky enough to have air conditioners are often unable to use them. Now I'm talking to you with no electricity in my home. The electricity is cut off. Suzanne says that insulating building materials can offer ways to help cool down buildings without using any energy at all. If we minimize energy consumption in buildings, we will reduce pollution in air. We will reduce the increase in temperature. The insulation of walls and roofs is very important. It can reduce energy consumption by about 40%. This is a large number. Another way to keep buildings cool is through clever design using natural ventilation. And that's where something called a wind catcher comes in. We need to support it by a wind catcher. Wind catchers, or badgir as they're referred to in Iraq, are traditional architectural vents. They cool buildings by creating a natural flow of air inside by making use of the prevailing wind outside. If you built it in the right way, with the right direction, you can get airflow through these spaces. I use it in my house. I have two wind catchers. Suzanne has a two-story house, and her wind catchers poke out of the top of it by about a metre, like a chimney. And I put it with the northwest direction. This is the wind direction in Baghdad. Inside the house, the rooms have small windows in them that open into the wind catcher's vent. I can have air through this opening and I can get a flu in my house with a natural ventilation. So if you're sitting in your house, sometimes you can feel the breeze from the wind catcher? Yes, yes, of course. Hmm. You can feel it easily. Only open the windows that is on this wind catchers. And I have rooms that have two wind catchers. You have a very clear flow of air in this room. I can speak to you now with the moderate climate that I can sit and speak without feeling hot, very hot. If there is an increase in temperature, the wind catcher is very important and it can be modified according to the climate, according to the city. In Iraq, for example, Suzanne told me that the airflow is actually fairly low, but a well-positioned wind catcher can still make even a slight breeze work to cool down the inside of a building. Sometimes this relies on what's called the stack effect. Hot air is less dense than cold air, and so if a room is particularly hot, when that hot air enters the internal windows of the wind catcher, it tends to travel upwards and escape out of the opening at the top. Suzanne's research is looking at how to improve the design of traditional wind catchers and make them even more efficient. One potential solution she's looking at is to channel the wind over cool materials like soil underground or even water to make the breeze a few degrees cooler. In my research, with another researchers, we try to use the earth cooling design. In summer, that earth is still cool. Until September, if we dig down in, in earth, we can use its cooling and use pipes and water in these pipes, and then use this water to cool down the spaces with the wind catcher. So Gemma, does this wind catcher idea work on bigger buildings, or is it really only suited for smaller spaces? Well, there's no reason why it shouldn't work in bigger buildings. And actually, Suzanne has been researching how to make them smaller and how to retrofit existing residential blocks or even schools with wind catchers. I love that idea. Instead of having dry, crinkly, cold air conditioning air coming out of the air ducts, you just get natural air flowing in from outside. Uh, But what about even bigger buildings, though, like a skyscraper or something like that? Would wind catchers work there? I don't really know, actually, Dan. It's a good question. But there are other passive cooling techniques that could be used on big buildings. And actually, Anthony Ubukiri was telling me about a really big shopping center in Harare in Zimbabwe 
that was designed with a particularly ingenious technique in mind. You've pointed to this really great example in the Zimbabwean capital, Harare, of uh, shopping in an office complex called the Eastgate Centre, which has been inspired by a termite mound. Can you describe that to us and tell us what it's doing right, basically? Okay, in, in Zimbabwe, they may actually have quite a range. You know, they may actually have something really warm day and really cold night. So you're really looking for a building that can manage to achieve a temperature that is fairly balanced and consistent, regardless of what happens outside. So the team that did that project were really very smart because what they did was looking at the termites, because what happens is that they need to maintain a temperature that is somewhere of a range of maybe two to three degrees. Researchers involved in the building of the Eastgate Centre in the mid-1990s believed that termites maintained a stable temperature inside each mound by connecting its physical structure to the soil underneath. They thought this allowed for colder air to flow upwards, essentially harnessing the Earth's cool properties. When you dig down into the Earth within three, four, five metres, you have a constant temperature, essentially. So they've created a mound that connects substructure levels and superstructure levels and created openings that helps them to move temperatures and maintain temperatures within the range they want. Basically, if air gets very warm, it will rise and escape. And so that's the model upon which the Eastgate Centre was designed. Colder air is drawn in through the bases of the lower parts of the building and then gets drawn up through a vent area system, a shaft area, so that the warm air then gets expelled from the higher height. So basically similar concept. And then they try to accelerate the movement of the air by design. And they created valves, if you like, of different sizes. And they work as a team to open and close different valves at different types of the day at different levels in order to achieve the temperature that they want. It took quite a lot of work on this already in terms of how they harness that concept. Since the Eastgate Centre was built, newer research has actually changed our understanding of how termites cool down their mounds. It's actually more like they act as a kind of lung using the air outside. But the building still achieves what it intended to. It's cooler inside than it is outside. Anthony says it's likely to take some time before more architects start making more use of traditional knowledge, materials and technologies. There's a lot of investment required to allow space and opportunity for that to be developed. Unfortunately, when it now comes to commercial buildings, it's a longer journey for people to see the impacts. Sometimes because it is not the people that are developing the building that actually use it straight away. Anthony still laments the way traditional forms of architecture were replaced. Take, for example, mud architecture. He thinks a different future could have been possible. So you can imagine if mud architecture, just if I was to, if you had to have a dream and think if mud architecture was not interrupted and was allowed to evolve naturally and develop at its own pace, where would it be today if not for that interruption? So as the world keeps getting hotter, it's cool to hear about these other ways that people can passively, more efficiently, more sustainably stay cool and adapt to the hotter summers and days and nights and everything coming down the line. Yeah, totally. And, you know, as I've been talking to the researchers we've been hearing from in this episode, I couldn't help thinking about how sad it was that all this knowledge about how to keep buildings cool has often been dismissed by Western architecture. But it's given me hope. 
you know, that people are trying to rehabilitate some of these technologies and, and we try and use them for really hot places. And hopefully more and more architects will be thinking about these kind of things in the future. That's it for this week. We've got a few people to thank for this episode. First of all, our colleague Adijewan Soyinka, who works with Anthony Ubukiri on a piece back in 2020 that inspired this story. Also thanks to our colleague Dale Burning-Sawa for her input, and to Vandali M. John, a scholar who we also spoke to for this episode. Thanks too to our global executive editor Stephen Kahn, to Alice Mason for our social media, and to Dan Ibocca for help with our transcript this week. And finally, to Graham Griffith for all his help over the past few months. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. You can also sign up for our free newsletter. There's a link in the show notes. If you like what we do, please support the podcast and the conversation more generally. Just go to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced by Menda Marawani and sound designed by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. I'm Gemma Ware, the executive producer of the show. And I'm Dan Reno. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.